HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live from Roberta's Pizzeria every Tuesday at an undetermined time. Supposed to be 12. Happy Valentine's Day, people. This is the Valentine's Day uh, issue of uh, Cooking Issues. Call in all your questions live, too. 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Here again with uh, Nastasha the Hammer Lopez and... Uh, the engineering crew in the other room. How are you doing, Stas? Good. So, the reason I'm late today, today, literally, most of the time, my fault. Most of the time, my fault. Check this one out. I'm on, I'm on the uh, subway because I still haven't fixed my bike yet, mainly because I'm lazy. And uh, I run, run, because I see, see the train coming, right? The, uh, the uh, J train, M train, whatever it is. I run like a lunatic, run, so I, like, I have a huge headache now, like, almost like I'm going like, to get an aneurysm or something like that. Jump into the car, door shuts, and then promptly sits on the platform for 20 minutes. They finally come on, open the door, and they say, hey – uh, yeah, there's some lunatic. This is Valentine's Day in New York for you people. There's some lunatic walking across the tracks on the Williamsburg Bridge, like stumbling back and forth. Apparently, I don't know, some star-crossed idiot, like walking back and forth across the tracks on the Williamsburg Bridge. So there's no train traffic on the Williamsburg Bridge. And they don't open the doors to let us out. They trap us like sardines in a box. Thank God my son wasn't there because that's his worst nightmare on earth. So I had to run out and get a taxi so that I could talk to you fine folks today. Anyhow, happy Valentine's Day. Stas, what are you going to do for Valentine's Day? I'm babysitting your kids. (laughs) Yeah, because I have to go work at Booker and Dax, the bar. And first of all, it's only till 10 and Nastasha's night doesn't even begin until 11. I should be getting the pity party because my wife is away on Thanksgiving. I won't even, Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, on Valentine's Day. I won't even see my wife on Valentine's Day. I don't get a pity party for that. And check this out, people. Today, Valentine's Day, is the 20th anniversary of, of me starting to go out with my wife. Twenty. I started I, for, My first date with my wife was on Valentine's Day 20 years ago today. And, uh, and I'm not even going to see her today. All right. <laughs> there you go. See, I believe I deserved a pity party for that one. But uh, yeah, I used to hate Valentine's Day. I hated Valentine's Day so much. Like my, the first twenty years of my life, Valentine's Day worst day in the world. But uh, you know, ever since then, ever since I started going out with my wife, it's been 
good day. Except today when she's not here. Rah. Anyway. Okay. Oh, by the way, I realized, I don't remember whether it was last week or the week before, uh, someone asked a question on uh, Japanese Western-style knives because uh, they, they had a – I forget which, which brand it was. Um, uh, I don't know. I forget. But uh, Japanese Western knives, which are sharpened uh, differentially on two sides, like 30, 70 and whatnot. And the question they actually asked me, I realized this morning as I was showering, I was like, they actually asked me, how do you use a steel with, with a knife like that? And I realized I didn't actually answer that question. I didn't. I talked a million for a million years about sharpening and different knife styles and everything, but never about how to actually uh, use a steel. You can't. Don't use a steel on a knife like that because it's almost impossible for you to accurately steal it uh, with the two different uh, edge angles. What I would recommend, though, is something that back when I used to have sharp knives in my house, and that means before I had a babysitter who would use my knives. Uh, I don't know. If, I don't know what the hell she does with them. Juggle. I don't know what the hell she does. But I can't keep them sharp anymore, so I stopped trying. So my knives are now – I went from having like very, very sharp knives to having very, very dull knives. Um, there's a cute kid, by the way, looking in the window of our radio station, pulling her hat on, staring at Nastasha. I think in horror. I think she's staring at Nastasha, Nastasha in horror. Anyway. Um, so what I recommend uh, to keep knives like that super sharp is, it, is the same thing that barbers use for uh, you know, generations for razors, which is get yourself a leather belt, like a leather strop, wide one, hang it up uh, somewhere in your kitchen and uh, strop your knife. And that really helps to bring uh, like a light bit of an edge back. You can either strop just with an oiled leather uh, band, which is what I did, or use a super, super, super mild abrasive. But the reason it's okay is because you're going in the opposite direction than you would do when you're stealing, and so you're not going to dull down uh, your knife. And it helps to knock a little bit of the like minor burrs that happen as you're cutting. So I would go invest in a strop. I love it. And plus, strops look badass. When you're stropping a knife, it looks kind of badass. You ever stropped a knife thing? No. No? You don't like strops? I wasn't really listening. Good, good. Well, it's good to see you're doing your job here, as always. Okay. Uh, hi, hi, Dave and Nastasha. A quick sausage question. I found some information on the Cooking Issues blog about cooking sausages directly in a liquid, uh, in, in a liquid with a circulator. One thing the blog didn't mention is how long it takes to get an average size sausage to temperature in a 60 degrees Celsius bath. Additionally, what is the maximum amount of time that sausages should be held at this temperature before the quality goes south? Thanks, Matthew. Okay. Well... That's an interesting question. Uh, I should think that the that the interior of the sausage, I mean, a- any reasonable size sausage, is going to be done probably in 40, 45 minutes, something like that, if you think about it relative to an egg. If you actually want to measure it, you can use uh, one of the programs like sous vide dashboard that you can, is available on, uh, on your iTunes or whatnot. Uh, and, and you could check exactly, but within 45 minutes or so, uh, the average size thick you know, sausage should be done. Uh, now, I would hold it for longer than that because the, the deal is is typically you have some tougher cuts of meat in a sausage and you're tenderizing it via um, via grinding. That's one of the reasons why you grind it, right? Well, if you hold it longer and longer, the meat gets more and more tender. So depending on what cuts of meat are in it, uh, you could hold it for quite a long time at those temperatures, quite a long time. Now, I've never held a sausage longer than – oh six hours or so but uh they were good at the end of uh six hours the trick 
remember when you're when you're cooking sausage in a liquid like that is to uh, have the liquid be so flavorful that you're not leaching uh, flavor out constantly over time. I would not cook them for any longer than necessary in an excess of flavorless liquid. Or you could put them in a Ziploc bag with a small amount of oil and cook them forever. Not forever, but you know, for a long time, hours. Uh, and they're just going to probably get better, probably not get worse, depending on what kind of, kind of, kind of meat uh, that you put into it. Um, anyway. Does that help? Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's a good technique. I do that technique all the time. Everyone's like, I, I think I told this, on, I said this on the show before, but I bought some really cruddy, not cruddy, but like you know, cheap, cheap sausage, and pe- and cooked it that way, sixty degrees, sixty or sixty-two depends. It's going to be a little pink at the center at sixty, which some people freak out about. So you might want to do sixty-two, depending on what kind of meat is in the sausage, and depending on whether the sausage is already cured. If the sausage is cu- a cured kind of sausage, if there's any sort of nitrites in it, it's going to be pink anyway, and then you can cook it to whatever temperature you want. In which case, I would do sixty. If not. Uh, you might want to do 62. Depends on, on <clears throat> how people feel. Uh, but uh, anyway, I bought this cheap chorizo. And there were people like, this is the most delicious sausage in the whole world. And I was like, it's a circulator. It's not me. Anyway, uh, I had something else with that. But I forget what it is. Oh, yeah. Anyway, uh, my my brain's a little a little fried because uh, I'm saying like we – we here at Cooking Issues haven't been burning uh, the candle at both ends recently. We've just been taking the candle, throwing it in the oven, and melting that sucker down. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like years ago, it's hilarious. Like, uh, you know, I heard Drew, Drew Nipront, you know, the famous restaurateur, he was giving a talk somewhere. I forget where I was. I was attending the talk. And he said this He said, uh, People always ask me, how do you balance, you know, like a family life and a restaurant life? And he said, You don't. Ha! <laughs> and you were like, I can do it. Well, you know, yeah, whatever. Anyway, funny. Okay, so uh, yeah, here's the thing: like uh, working at the bar until all hours of night, right? And then putting your kids on the bus in the morning is not comp- not like did no no work. No work, right? So my brain, therefore, is not working. So if I'm a little frazzled today, folks, it's just because I'm stupid. Okay. Uh, dear Dave and Nastasha, uh, a friend of mine recently found out she has celiac disease and therefore cannot have any more gluten. Uh, I was attempting to create for her some of the homemade goodness that the rest of us get to enjoy, uh, i.e. Uh, gluten. Delicious, delicious gluten. But when looking on the internet, I found many conflicting suggestions for the use of xanthan and guar gum, as well as suggested non-wheat flour blends, tapioca, potato, millet, etc., without rhyme or reason as to the ratios used. Do you have any experience or advice for working with gluten? gluten-free breads, pizzas, or pastas. What changes in properties can I expect from different brands of flour? Uh, what is uh, working in xanthan gum that is intended to replace the gluten structure? Thanks for any help. Alex from Florida. All right. Well, first of all, uh, I don't have any actual experience uh, cooking gluten-free because I haven't had any uh, – I haven't had any need really to to do it, you know, for my own family. And I, I cook occasionally. I'll cook some gluten free stuff if I have someone specifically coming over to my house. But I've never done a thorough a thorough researching of it. Um, but I do have some advice. The the reason, look, the, the, here's the reason it, it it it's tough to and there's so many recipes out there is that wheat flour right is fantastic stuff and uh, there's. And all of the recipes that you know we've been developing since time immemorial are based on the properties of wheat flour. So 
you know, one of the flat properties of wheat flour is its flavor, right? Which we have all come to appreciate. Uh, and the other one, uh, the other other ones are its gluten, which provides structure. Uh, it, there's a bunch of properties, and the issue with making a, a replacement for wheat flour is that no one grain flour or no one flour uh, has all of the properties of. Uh, of wheat. So if you're trying to actually mimic a wheat flour product in terms of its texture, right, you're going to have to use a, a, a blend of, uh, of flours, right? So that said, and I'll get to the, the guar and the xanthan in a second. That said, uh, you know, a lot of people base the initial uh, part of their recipe on rice flour, right? Because it's fairly bland, fairly neutral, right? And, you know, it's not that expensive. It's easy to obtain, right? But if you use it exclusively, then it tends to make kind of dense, leaden, uh, gritty things. So they add other, uh, you know, starches and flours to it, like tapioca, for instance, uh, which is going to add some stretch because it's really kind of weird gluey stuff, uh, add some lightness or potato, which uh, helps absorb, uh, which helps keep things moist and also make things lighter. So it's a balancing act between choosing uh, those different um, those different things. Now, when you go to add things like bean flowers, which some people do, uh, that's going to also add its own kind of holding capabilities, ability to hold bubbles and trap bubbles, which is what one of the great things about wheat flowers, its ability, and this is what the gluten helps here, is the ability to hold bubbles and form a nice structure when things are baking. Um, so each flour has this different thing. But if you're going to add bean flour, the problem is if it's a very uh, light flavored thing, you start tasting the bean flour in it and it's, and it's kind of gross. So if you need something sturdier and the flavor can be covered up, then you can use things like that. And if they can't, you have to use something more neutral. In addition, uh, a way to hold bubbles is to make things thicker. So people add starches that help thickening. So they're adding things like arrowroot starch, even though it's quite expensive. Right. Uh, a a good thing I saw on the uh, on the interwebs about this is uh, from uh, and and this what I like about it is just her opinion on on what the different flours do. You go to gluten free mommy and she has a, a list of all the different base flours and kind of what her uh, opinion on kind of what they what they contribute or don't attri- uh, contribute to particular uh, mixes, including sorghum flour, white flour, uh, white rice flour, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean the one problem I have with all these websites actually is that they – look, if you have an issue like you can't have gluten, then focus on that. But everyone also throws in a bunch of nutritional mumbo-jumbo about what's good for you and what's not good for you. I hate that. I hate thinking – and my kids even do this. I hate it so much. It's my kids are like, is this good for you? Is that good for you? I'm like, it's all either good or not good for you depending on the balance of things you eat in your diet. There's no, there are very few things that are bad for you. And there are very few things that are good for you. You know what I mean? Like if you ate only carrots, you would turn orange. You know, I told my kid that and then he won't eat carrots, freaked out about carrots. He thinks he's going to turn orange. I'm like, no, no, you have to eat like many, many sacks of carrots. But the point is variety is the spice of life, my friends. And you want to eat a lot of different things. Do you know what I'm saying? Anyway, all right. So uh, another issue on that. Now, so that, that's just the different ratios of flour and what the rhyme or reason is. Is You want to get a balance that mimics the texture of wheat flour without having an, uh, a, a, you know, an overly assertive taste. Usually the tastes are beanie. They call them beanie or kind of like, you know, weird kind of like dusty. Like, you know, like, like chickpea flour or like uh, – what's that? Black-eyed pea flour, things like that. Okay. Now – as for xanthan gum and guar gum, uh, xanthan gum 
is used to replace the protein because like protein, xanthan gum can form a gel and really hold a light gel, right, and really hold air bubbles well. So it's used directly as a gluten replacer. Guar gum is cheaper than xanthan gum, right, and the guar gum that you typically buy in the store has an awful awful kind of beanie taste so i hate using it in things like ice cream there's really nice nice guar gum called flavor free guar from tic gums that is very neutral in taste uh but guar isn't really as good a replacer for gluten as xanthan because xanthan has the ability to form a loose gel structure that holds bubbles during the baking process whereas guar is simply a thickener so i wouldn't replace uh like i wouldn't say that guar on its own is going to do your job for you. But guar in conjunction with xanthan, guar can be used to replace some of the xanthan and make the xanthan a little bit cheaper. Uh, Now, uh, another thing you can use if you're not like multiply going to make your life difficult is eggs. The protein in eggs is fantastic uh, and and Easy, easy to use, and so that the protein in egg, egg white, and you know, I guess also an egg yolk can help replace some of the gluten because it holds structure as well. Uh, so you know, eggs, xanthan, uh, guar. I mean, whatever. The, the, then I came across a website that's actually pretty interesting, and apparently it's won a, a bunch of awards. Uh, Gluten free girl and the uh, chef, and here's something that they said that. Uh, very interesting. Uh, now, by the way, I have some issues with the site. For instance, the, I don't know whether it's the uh, gluten-free girl or the chef who's who's writing this because uh, I don't know that much about the website. But you know, they stopped using xanthan and guar. They use a, they the recipe I saw from them. They use a lot of eggs because it's their opinion that they that they're having a negative reaction to the xanthan and to the guar. It could be that they're having a negative reaction to the guar. Guar is uh, you know you don't really digest guar, and so if you eat eight boatloads of guar it's like you know it's like eating a, a, a serving of colon blow you know what i mean and you're gonna you know you're gonna have some fiber issues you know it's like eating a, a whole boatload of fiber it's gonna give you some swelling and some poop yeah anyway but you know what i mean it's like so that 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 can be an issue the good thing about xanthan is i doubt anyone's actually having a reaction to the xanthan because you're using it in much smaller quantities than you would use the guar so it has less Stuff that can go in there and cause you to bloat and swell and poo and all that kind of stuff, all that good kind of stuff. Anyway, Gluten Free Girl and the Chef, they don't use uh, gum replacements like that. They don't use guar xanthan, but they do use eggs. But they brought up an interesting point, which I hadn't uh, thought about, which is uh, I mean, I always bake with grams, always, 100% of the time, I bake in grams. That's not true, sometimes ounces, but by weight. Uh, and by weight is obviously everyone knows it's the best way to bake and everyone in the world thinks that we Americans are small children in the kitchen because we use these dumb cup measurements to measure things out. And in general, we can get away with it because we're measuring the same thing over and over and over again. And even though we're plus or minus about 10% with our measurements, our recipes still work. I say we should switch away from uh, using cups, not because of the accuracy, although that's great, but because it's really messy to measure with cups. And it's much easier to measure and to change recipes when you're using a scale. I mean, a scale is just the best thing to have. Anyways, uh, turns out that these different flours that you're substituting in when you're making your uh, your gluten-free flour mix have radically different densities from AP uh, wheat flour. And so if you switch to going by weight, your substitutions are going to be much, much easier. And so that is what I think a good recommendation from the gluten-free girl and the chef. 
Anyway, let's go to our first commercial break and come back with Cooking Issues. Welcome back to Cooking Issues. Jack, what was that? That was uh, the Pixies from Carlos. That was some weird stuff, Carlos. Yeah, man, that's what I was saying. That's some weird, weird business. I mean, I know we're some weird people, but that's some weird, weird business. Uh, call and order questions too. 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Pixies, that's, that's what? That's Bjork? No, no. Bjork was the sugar cubes. Sugar cubes. Yeah. Man, you know what? And that was my era. Like, I should, like, this should be on the tip of my tongue. That just wasn't my scene. You know what I mean? Yeah. I was more fishbone chili peppers kind of a guy. Yeah, anywho. Uh, okay. The only reason I say that is because that's also weird. You know what I mean? Bjork. All right. Uh, oh, I uh, forgot to mention the gluten-free girl and the chef. Those guys also use uh, flaxseed or chia seeds. You ever cook with that crap, Stas? You blend it with a liquid and it turns to like a mucilaginous goop. So they also use that as a, uh, as a, uh, a structure replacer. But my point is this. If you're using a mucilaginous goop as a structural replacer, just use xanthan. Xanthan's a great mucilaginous goop, and you don't have to go grind up flax seeds to do it. My opinion. My opinion. Just me. Just me. Okay. Uh, oh, wait. Oh, I had something else. Oh, yeah. So when you're dealing with the gluten-free stuff also, remember what you're using it for. A cookie doesn't need a lot of gluten. A cake doesn't need a lot of gluten. So there you're just trying to mimic the texture of uh, the texture of a wheat flour uh, stuff, not necessarily the super – when you really need the hardcore gluten is in a bread. In a cake, you want it to be fairly light. And this is another point that the gluten-free sh- uh, girl and the chef bring up, which is good, is that remember batters, recipes, a lot of times will tell you not to overmix, not to develop the gluten. And when you're dealing gluten-free, you don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. Uh, so in a cookie or a cake, you can just focus on the taste and the texture of the kind of starch balance, the flour itself, uh, with just enough structure from the protein to give it some structure and you don't have to worry about it holding air in the way of a a bread would. So that's another reason why there's no one-to-one substitution because you're trying to do different wheat things with wheat flour, depending on, on, on what you're doing. Okay. Now, uh, oh, by the way, we got uh, something in from uh, Elliot Papineau uh, about uh, stropping. Bob Kramer has a strop kit, uh, so you can go online, look up Bob Kramer, and purchase a strop kit. Strops are really badass, I have to say. You look like you look like you're gonna like a, like a like Sweeney Todd, Demon Barber of Fleet Street, like you're gonna go slit someone's throat as soon as you start stropping. Like if you were stropping a knife behind your kitchen counter, somebody be like, Man, I'm not gonna mess with that dude. That dude's stropping a knife behind the counter. Equally, it doesn't have to be a, a guy, a woman. You know, when I say dude, it's kind of a gender-neutral dude. Is there any sort of gender-neutral 
All of your appliances Dude. are women. What are you talking about? Not all my appliances are women. Take her. Make sure she's... When you're talking about the centrifuge, the rotovap. <laughs> you're crazy. You're a crazy lady. Okay. Uh... Elliot also has a second point, which is that if you need to find uh, the edge of your seventy thirty knife, you just lay it flat on a stone and raise it until you feel the edge. That's good. Or I don't know if I mentioned this, using a Sharpie on the edge, you can feel – you can look and see whether you're being accurate to do it when you want to test your edge. Anyway, OK. He also writes in with a question, uh, Elliot does, and says, whenever you get on the air, can you talk about the different sources of glutamate? I've been experimenting with uh, various uh, – uh, free glutamate uh, containing products such as tomatoes, mushrooms, kombu, katsuobushi, and what's the best way to pair foods containing free glutamates? Well, that's uh, a good point and interesting. I always uh, find it hilarious when someone eats something that contains eight boatloads of uh, of uh, you know free uh, you know glutamate there, and then they say that they have a reaction to uh, MSG. Nastasha, yeah, I'm talking I about know. you. I know. Anyway. Uh, so I mean, the best thing to do is like – so the classic – think about it this way. The classic pairing, classic, classic, classic pairing obviously is kombu, which is a, has a high source of uh, free glutamates and katsuobushi, which has uh, high, high IMP. Those two things go together uh, and basically synergistically react to make like mega mommy, mega umami, which is why kombu uh, – which is why the, like kombu and katsuobushi are so good together. And Nastasha hates, by the way, kombu broth. I do. But you like it once you add katsuobushi and turn yes, it into miso soup. Yes, you yes. just don't like the seaweed broth on its own. Yes. Anyway, so it's it good like to have cavity fillings. What? It tastes like cavity fillings. Uh, well, I wouldn't know. My teeth are fine. I don't have any cavities. I've never had a cavity, and I've never heard anyone describe it like that. So I'm sure you're being crazy, like usual. Cavity fillings. Why would kombu to stock taste like cavity filling? What do they make cavity fillings out of? I don't know. Aluminum. Al- no. Aluminum. <laughs> you tell me if you aluminum? know. Aluminum. Aluminum. Think so? No, they used to be made out of a mercury amalgam, but they're not anymore. It's aluminum. No. No. Why would you put aluminum in your mouth? Crazy, crazy person. It's nuts. You know, people. Seriously, people. Seriously. Okay. Uh, So, how do we get on that anyway? Oh yeah. So uh, when you're when you're pairing these together, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, it's good to add. I mean. I just throw a bunch of those things. I have to cook a lot of vegetarian stuff uh, because uh, a couple of members of my family are vegetarian and they come over. So a lot of my sauces that I used to umami up by throwing in anchovies because uh, an- anchovies are delicious in-, in everything. You could throw anchovies into just about anything. And I'm not talking about the white ones that you know everyone like you know they they love like the bocarones and stuff like that, which are great, they're great, fine, whatever. But like you know, good old fashioned salt cured anchovies uh, in the can uh, are like you know one of God's great ingredients, and they make almost anything taste better. Everyone says they don't like them, and no one has ever said they don't like them when it's mixed into a pizza sauce. Pizza sauce good with anchovy, yeah. Stash is not your head down. Salad dressing good with an anchovy in it. Any of that stuff you want to you want to umamalate something, bang, hit it in, you're done. Anyway. <laughs> Umamalate? Yeah. yeah. You heard it here first. Cooking issues. Umamalate. Uh, <laughs> but the uh, uh, the point is, so like you know, you have to you have to add other high umami stuff. Now, you can go and work on things like tomatoes. And yes, I use boatloads of uh, tomato paste when I'm when I'm because it's like super concentrated tomato. Obviously, you use lots of mushrooms to get that meaty stuff up. Parmesan. These are you know all obvious, and you end up you know you end up doping stuff back with a whole boatload of soy, right? The problem with me is is that trying to get meaty and uh, high umami flavors by 
just adding high umami ingredients like that, specifically soy and whatnot, really let, lend, lets, makes everything kind of taste the same. It, it kind of it makes all of the food have a similarity to it that you don't get uh, from just, for instance, adding salt. So, like, I think I talked about this, like, you know, I don't know, a year ago or something like that. You know, a lot of companies are trying to lower the sodium content of their foods, and the only way they can this is the world's worst term, and it shows how people think. But uh, increase the palatability of the things that they make uh, when they reduce the sodium. Isn't that gross? They're just like, we're trying to reduce the sodium, but increase, but keep the palatability. Just gross, right? It's like, not like we're gonna make some delicious stuff. It's like you know we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna make it more palatable. Anyway, <laughs> so they they dope it with um, with a non-sodium form of uh, glutamate, so that they can keep the quote unquote sodium level low, uh, and they do it using that like. Also, quote unquote, natural sources, which means that they'll take like eight eight tons of seaweed and turn it into a powder. Might as well just use MSG. Anyway, uh, problem is when you dope foods with specifically with like lots of free glutamates like that, they tend to then all taste like dashi to me, right? Mm-hmm. You've had that also happen too, right? Mm-hmm. I was tasting somebody's pasta. I think I mentioned this. I was tasting someone's pasta, and yeah, it, it was it was a fettuccine Alfredo, yeah. right? And which is what I, which strangely, what I call my wife sometimes because it's like Jennifer. Jenna, Fred, Fred, Fredicini, Fred, any whatever. Anyway, like all, all my, everything I say in in private when I'm not on the air is some stupid, is. stupid combination of crazy, dumb, random inferences. You know what I mean? Anyway, uh, so Fredicini Alfredo, I was like, this tastes good, but Fredicini Alfredo is not supposed to taste like dashi. Am I wrong? Am I wrong? Right? Anyway. Yeah. Anyways, uh, so that's my feeling, Elliot, uh, on that. Should we do one more commercial? Sure. Before I go on the one commercial break, I'll have to say this. My favorite Valentine's quote of all time. Last year, I was in the Rite Aid outside of my house, which is a pharmacy for all you people that don't know what a Rite Aid is. Nastasha hates them because she only shops at CVS. She literally they went – better she, music. Uh, okay, okay. She literally last, – last week, Nastasha had a root canal, right? So I hope she was high on Vicodin when she made this choice. She went, to a, she went out of her way to go to a CVS even though they had a two-hour wait for the medicine – she could have got it in 10 minutes at the right age. She would two hours, like out of her way, two hours wait for medicine because she likes to hold music better. No. Yes. So the store music. The store music. Whatever. Yes. Uh, whatever. That's hold. You're Do you on hold. tabs on like the stores and what music they play, really? I know. I know. Crazy, right? You know, put on your iPod, listen to whatever music no. you want. And don't wait two hours for your Vicodin and your antibiotics. That's my point. Anyways, I'm in the right A like a year ago, and they had the Easter decorations out right around now. And someone, a lady walks in. She goes, Easter, it ain't even Valentine's over yet. Anyway, commercial break. My name is Cupid Valentino, the modern day Cupid. And I just want to say one thing. Happy Valentine's Day. I just want to say happy Valentine's Day. Can y'all dig that? Now, when arrows don't penetrate, see. Ah, yeah, now, now look at here, he straight for your heart. Now, and he won't miss you. But that's alright, y'all won't believe in me anyway, but...
Cannot ignore the Cupid. By the way, I just looked out the window, and Indy Jesus looks like he's having a fine Valentine's Day. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's, he can smile on Indy Jesus' face. You know what it takes to get Jesus to smile? You know? Anyway, today's show is sponsored by The Modernist Pantry, supplying innovative ingredients for the modern cook. Do you love to experiment with new cooking techniques and ingredients, but hate, hate, hate to overspend for pounds of supplies when only a few grams are needed per application? Modernist Pantry has a solution. They offer a wide range of modern ingredients and packages that make sense for the home cook and enthusiast. And most cost only around five bucks, saving you time, money, and storage space. Whether you're looking for hydrocolloids, pH buffers, or even meat glue, you'll find it at Modernist Pantry. And if you need something that they don't carry, just ask. Chris Anderson and his team will be happy to source it for you. With inexpensive shipping to any country in the world, Modernist Pantry is your one stop shop for innovative cooking ingredients. Modernist Pantry carries sequestrants, including sodium citrate and sodium hexametaphosphate. These ingredients act as a preservative and also mop up stray calcium ions, which is helpful when working with hydrocolloids that gel in the presence of calcium, a.k.a. sodium alginate and Coco-Jell-F. Okay, which is gel and. Uh, fans of cooking issues that place an order of $25 or more before next week's show will get a free, pack, uh, free package of sodium hexametaphosphate to play with. Simply use the promo code CI72 when placing your order online at modernistpantry.com. Visit modernistpantry.com today for all of your modernist cooking needs. Hey, and Chris Anderson, good for you for doing the sodium hexametaphosphate and not the sodium citrate. Sodium hex- hexametaphosphate is the baller sequestrant. Sodium citrate is more of a buffer. Sodium hexametaphosphate, or SHIMP, as they call it, that stuff's the balls. It's good stuff. Oh, also, Colin, longtime writer and Colin writes, because, you know, I always gripe about what's the difference between a home cook and an enthusiast. What, what are we talking about? So Colin writes in, regarding enthusiasts, you don't need to cook anything to play with hydrocolloids. Science nerds love that stuff, but some can't actually feed themselves. Thus, I believe the distinction, Colin. Uh, other topics, uh, my wedding anniversary, which I, it's not my wedding no, anniversary. No, 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 what? that was my note to you. Oh, I thought Colin knew my, my anniversary, <laughs> so I was crazy. It's like, how's Colin going to know that? It's not my wedding anniversary. I got married in June. It's my anniversary of going out. Nastasha, you know what? Like, listen, Nastasha, when you put this stuff on there, put it, our comments in a different color, just so you know how this show runs. Like, your comments, when you write them, are in black, and my comments that I make to jog my memory when I'm yapping on the radio, I write in blue, so I can tell what's us and what's you. And the headline of your question I write in red. Not that anyone gives a rat's patoot. Okay. Uh, now. <laughs> what? Pa- other, I can't say patoot? Other topics. <laughs> you thought Colin knew. I thought Colin was like other topics. <laughs> it's random. Okay. Okay. So we have a question in from uh, Marvin uh, Woodhouse saying, uh, loves the show. I've been listening from Ireland and now Germany since day one. From Ireland to Germany. It's pretty cool. I wonder what, I wonder what, uh, I wonder what the... They do, yeah. What, what do they do that they're moving from Ireland to Germany? I wonder. Curious. Anyway, question one. I'm in the process of moving to Germany, and most apartments here do not come with kitchens, just a bare room with tiles and connections. So I'll be starting from square one. What's the must-have list of stuff in it uh, if you were starting from a bare room? Nothing. Not even extraction. That's hood for you and I in America. Uh, the kitchen will be about 20 square meters. So, Nastasha, look yes. up what 20 square meters is in square feet so my brain can wrap my head around it. Okay. First of all, I know there's plenty of people here in New York City that wish their apartment came with no kitchen because it's just wasted space. How many people do you know that use their oven as a bookcase? I do, which is crazy. First of all, uh, just a separate note. Anyone out there, never store crap in your oven, right? It just means that you have a mental imbalance or a problem. Yeah. Don't ever store stuff in your oven. 
It's just, it's just not right because it implies you're not going to use it. If you're going to cook, don't store anything in your oven. My two cents. So what's 20 square meters? It's coming. Oh, thanks, Google. Thanks, it's AT&T with the slow Google. All right. First thing is first, as you mentioned, extraction. It's my feeling that a hunt light, like the, the biggest – it's eventually going to be seen as a health issue. Right? For people who cook a lot. 215.2 square Oh, that's good. 215, so that's about the size of my kitchen. That's a good space. That's a good size space. Uh, I mean, it's small by suburban standards, but, you know, my kitchen's pretty comfortable at 200 square feet, right? Yeah. I can have eight people cooking in my kitchen, but it's very well designed. Anyway, if I do say so myself. Uh, but uh, extraction, a hood, is the most important thing. Everyone here is under-designed in terms of uh, their hoods. Home hoods suck. Uh, they're the worst. They're useless. Not useless, but they're they're of limited usefulness. I would invest in a really good fan uh, vent that – this is illegal in the U.S. I don't know whether it is in Germany. Vent it straight out the window with a straight pipe straight out the window. Uh, I purchased a large blower, and it, the hood itself doesn't need to be expensive. It's just a piece of metal. It's the fan that you need uh, a good fan. And bigger fans rotate at slower speeds and therefore are not as annoying. Annoying as little fans that rotate at high speeds. So I would say that if you're going to spend, uh, you know, your nickels, first of all, go with good, uh, good hood. Secondly, if you're in Germany, I haven't checked it recently, but I assume it's similar to France in that the gas prices are relatively high relative to electric compared to the U.S. Get an induction. Uh, get induction. If you're going to be in this apartment a long time. Then go ahead and get something that's built in. Otherwise, you can get really nice induction hobs that you could take with you when you go. In particular, some manufacturers now make front-back uh, induction units so that you can uh, mimic an actual traditional uh, range by stacking induction units next to each other and having front-back on induction. So I would, uh, you know, I would definitely go that way. If you want to go more permanent, you can get uh, an induction, uh, you know, a regular induction over range. But the over range, the over things don't necessarily work that well but i'll go separate uh get a good convection oven with uh with um a good convection oven w- would be nice uh electric there as well uh, i'm assuming that you're again i'm assuming that electricity is going to be the best for you there in terms of uh cost so uh again i really don't have any idea what you're gonna i'll tell you what i have in mind which is about the same spot i have i have a large uh, oven that could take a full sheet pan if you're going to cook you wanted that it's not necessary but full sheet pan is again baller i have six burners you're probably not going to have that if you don't have extraction especially if you're going to go induction i also have a salamander which you're probably not going to put in your place but i love it uh, and a deep fryer next to it i find that that combination which i don't expect you to emulate is i can cook i can bang out uh, like a small restaurant's worth of food in my kitchen without breaking a sweat because it is the setup that you would have in a small restaurant kitchen. Basically, I have a fryer, a salamander, six burners, and a, and a full sheet pan uh, oven. Obviously, for me, it's important to have an espresso machine, uh, but you know, whatever. Since you're building this yourself, you can do some cool stuff. The coolest thing that you could possibly do is uh, put foot pedals on your sink. Every every sink uh, in the in the world in a kitchen or bathroom should have foot pedals installed, so that when your hands are disgusting, you don't have to touch the faucet. So I have a, I have hot and cold foot pedals uh, on my on my floor, and my wife, who didn't think it was uh, so important or such a good idea, she. She was like, really? Really? Now it's like, yes, really. You need that. Everyone who's used them loves it. And since you're installing from scratch, uh, get get the foot pedals. Don't skimp on your sink size. Sink size, you're never going to need to. You know, sink size is important, right? Mm-hmm. Don't you hate a tiny sink? Mm-hmm. What do you think? Yeah? I hate tiny sinks. Hates tiny sinks. Hates tiny sinks. Is there anything else? What do you think? 
It's, it's no. That's good. Good recommendation. Oh no, my iPad shut itself hey, off. Hey, Patrick Martins, mm-hmm. founder of Heritage Foods, oh my coming God. into the studio. Hey everybody. Yeah, there he is. Oh, he's got some really nice orange corduroys that I now covet. <laughs> you covet. I covet Patrick Martin's orange corduroy pants. Okay. Oh, oh, Eighteen miles, baby. What? What happened? Eighteen miles. Of what? In two days, I ran. Oh, he, uh, Patrick ran 18 miles in, in two days. I don't know. That's not good for your knees. That's, you know, it's bad for your knees. You know, anyway. Okay, question two from Marvin. Uh, I have a badass polyscience lab circul- uh, circulator model uh, 8812. And by the way, I couldn't find 8812. But the unit is so big that it's difficult to fit food around in the small bath it's designed to fit. I removed it from the lab bath, but there's no mounting bracket. Do you have any experience of mounting these things to or over a sink? I haven't actually mounted one of those to a sink, but... Uh, you might want to look at this as an alternative. Uh, though, uh, some of those units, the, the uh, and I couldn't find your exact one, but I have one that looks similar to it, have two screws in the back of it uh, on the bath itself that allow you to circulate in and out of that same bath. So you could literally just put uh, hoses and circulate into a sink and put the whole circulator into a cabinet next to it. And I've done that many times. That's how I chilled my rotovap, for instance. Uh, you just have to make sure you get the water levels uh, relatively the same so that you don't overflow your circulator bath. But uh, I would do that or else you could just uh, make a second uh, – I mean if you could weld, obviously you could do it. But you could easily mount one by just having someone cut out a stainless steel bracket with the same hole mounting pattern as the one that was in the bath and then cantilever it over your sink. I would make it with wing nuts so that you could take it off uh, very quickly without taking up too much space. But yes, it's definitely possible. But look into just using the bath as, uh, as a holding bin so that you can circulate stuff in and out. Question three. I'm throwing a cocktail party next month uh, to Marcus leaving you Ireland. Can you... What? Well, I have a caller? And finish up in two minutes. Wait. I have a caller? Caller, you're on the air. Hey, Dave. Uh, this is Todd Bryant. Got a quick question for you. Go ahead. Um, on, on following up on your knife uh, discussion a couple weeks ago, uh, how often do you use a steel on your knives? Uh, well, back in the day, on my German uh, on my German knives, I would use them pretty much uh, you know before and after, pretty much all the time. Okay. Or when my strop was hanging, I would I would strop them before and after. I mean, it all depends on what kind of uh, what kind of knife. So my German ones, I, I used to sharpen. Uh, you know, just not a quick one. You know, I wouldn't like go through the whole sharpening process, but I'd touch up the blades on the stone probably once a week, and uh, okay. and then you know I'd strop and or steel every use. My Japanese knives, you touch them up every time you use them, basically afterwards. You know, okay. Uh, okay. and you know the, the the real traditional Japanese ones and the Japanese Western ones. I never had much of a knack sharpening them. I got so I ended up I ended up not using them as much because I was not so good at sharpening them. Okay. Yeah. All right. So just touch my before and after then. Oh, and yeah, then I how would. do you know? What? All right. Then how do you know when it's time to do a full sharpening? Or you just do that automatically once a week? Yeah, I would just do it automatically. Or if they start dulling out, or if someone picks up your knife and uses it for something inappropriate. You know, it's like you you know you know when your knife is getting dull. You know when you can't bring it back, and the tomato you start having to push into it, and you split the tomato. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's just you know you could do it by that. I find it easier. If you just choose a time to do it, it depends on how much you cook. You know what I mean. But uh, if you just choose a time to do it, 
then your knives are always going to be in fantastic shape. You're not going to get creep and start using a, a, a dull knife when it could be sharp. So back when I could have sharp knives in my house, I would just have a routine. And you know, every Sunday before I started cooking family dinner, I would just go through my knives and sharpen it. I used an Edge Pro, which was easy to set up because I could just keep most of my knives at a similar edge angle and I could rip through them pretty quickly. An Edge Pro is not a good... Uh, sharpening system to sharpen one knife. It's good to sharpen your whole set of knives. You know what I mean? Because you have to set okay, it up yeah. and all that stuff. Yeah. Okay. Great. Well, that's what you answered my question. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, all right. Thanks Bye. a lot. All right. So, uh, question three. I got to answer this one uh, again from Marvin. I'm throwing a cocktail party next month. The Marcus leaving Ireland. Can you suggest some interesting cocktails and canapé combos, or as I call them, canaps? I have an uh, ISI, but no proper carbonation rig. I also have agar gelatin. I also need some non-alcoholic cocktails that are not lame, as there will be some pregnant ladies in attendance. Okay. Well, I hit the non-alcoholic stuff. I say make coriander the coriander syrup. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you make coriander syrup, just take make a simple syrup, crush up coriander, put it in there, add a little bit of uh, like a hot pepper, preferably red, like Thai red or Serrano or something like that. Um, that syrup makes a fantastic soda, and you can carbonate in an ISI. It's just going to cost you more. And the way you carbonate in an ISI is by uh, sh- shaking, adding some water, shaking the syrup with uh, with water, and then putting one CO2 cartridge in, shaking a little bit, venting that entire one off. You've cleared out all of the uh, air in there. In that now, now put a second charger on, shake it, and you'll get a good a second CO2 charger in your ISI. Uh, vent very, very. Let sit for a couple of minutes after you shake it. Let it vent very slow. And you can get a decent soda, and that's good. That syrup is also really good as a cocktail for uh, old fashions. It makes a great old fashioned, uh, makes a good tequila old fashioned, good mezcal old fashioned. Uh, we've been using that uh, and everything. That if you do make an old fashioned using coriander syrup, it's called a Cliff old fashioned because uh, you know Cliff, our you know ex intern Cliff, uh, came up with the idea of making a. Uh, What's it called? An old fashioned with that syrup. Uh, you have any? Nastasha's going to think of good uh, canaps while I answer your last question. And if not, you have a next month. I have a week to think. We have a week to think of your canaps. Canap, canapé. So I'll come back to it. And also, I will next week suggest some things you might be able to use with your one kilogram of ensorbent that's in your kitchen. Listen, Marvin, if you have one kilogram of ensorbent in your kitchen, that's almost going to take up your entire two hundred square foot space because one kilogram of ensorbent is a giant. Giant amount of ensorbent. Ensorbent, for all that you don't know, is the is the stuff that you make pow- uh, oils into powders with. But I'll come back with you on that, Marvin, next week, and we'll do it. And that has been this week for cooking issues. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.